Matthew chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We've got pew Bibles, and you can find the scripture we're going to look at on pages 976 and 977 of your pew Bible. Real quickly, baptism class. We had a baptism class in February. I think 13 students took part of it. Uh, took part in it. Ivy Courts taught it. Several of those students, including one yesterday, have made decisions to be Christ followers and be baptized. You're going to learn about the one that made the decision yesterday at the end of the service. Month of August, we're offering the class again. Would love to have your grade school students signed up. If you have questions, see me. Uh, You can call the office. Peggy has information about it, or you can talk to Ivy Courts. Announcement number two, Fan the Flame is coming to Clinton First Christian Church. This is a venture of several anonymous businesses here in Clinton that are wanting to bring an inspiring Christian event to our community. We're going to have it here at First Christian Church. Jason Gray, who I am told is an awesome singer-songwriter. He's got the number one single, Nothing to Is he awesome? Give him a hand if you want. I don't know him, but I hear good things about him. He's going to be here, awesome Christian comedian Jake Gledge is going to be here, and speaker Mike Malik, who preached last week, we're flying him back up for an awesome Friday evening in August. Tickets are priced ridiculously low, and all of the money raised through the tickets are going to two local charities, Dove and Fellowship of Christian Athletes. If you want to get your tickets, they are available in the foyer and will be available in the foyer every Sunday up until the event, as well as the office at First Christian Church when the office is open. You don't want to miss Friday night, August 16. Well, that's just not fair. Have you ever heard that phrase? Have you ever uttered that phrase? I was working a basketball game last night at Millican, just sweating like crazy, no air conditioning in in the gym, and the two teams were in a tightly contested battle, and it was almost humorous as one coach would scream out to the ref, that's not fair, we didn't get that call. And then just a couple minutes later, the other coach would say, that's not fair, we didn't get that call, all the way to the bitter end. The benches were saying, that's just not fair. At my house, the Taylor household in Chestnut, I hear that phrase all the time. When my daughter has two hours of homework and my son has two minutes of homework, my daughter says, that's just not fair. When my daughter jumps in the car and heads off for an evening with her friends and Peyton's stuck at home with the Xbox, he says, that's just not fair. And parents, you've been there, you've heard it, it's just part of the drill. What about last night? About 9.45 at night. When the verdict came across the screen, not guilty, many people, if you've been on Facebook, you've seen it, cried out and said, that's just not fair. That's kind of the world we live in. We, we scream out more times than not, that's just not fair. Jesus preached a parable, shared a parable, that really had that kind of reaction from the people that had been, along the fa- been around the faith the longest. These are people that that knew more about God than most of us ever will. Knew more about the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, than most of us will ever know. And when they heard this parable, they couldn't help but cry out, that's just not fair. And I've asked my daughter Jordan to read for us this parable of the vineyard workers, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, 
You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. That's the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the vineyard workers. And you've probably figured it out, most of you. The landowner in this parable represents God the Father. And the vineyard workers represent followers of Christ. See, this is really a parable. This is a teaching to people that know the Lord. Some parables are are really reaching out to people that maybe don't know the Lord. They don't have a faith. This is a teaching for people that have been around the church. This is a teaching for people that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, if that's not you this morning, don't get up and leave. You're, you're going to get a lot out of this because we're going to talk about this thing called the grace of God. And it's awesome. But understand first and foremost, this is a parable for God's people. This is a teaching for those of us that have been around the church. And as I have, as we went through this whole series on the parables, I want to give you just some general observations, things that kind of jumped out at me as I started studying the text, and then I want to leave you with some modern-day lessons. What do we do with Matthew chapter 20? And the first thing that jumped out at me when I read this parable is that some parables inspire us emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. We're wiping the tear away when we read it. This is probably not one of them. It just isn't. We read the parable of the prodigal son, and if you have any heart at all, you just melt at the idea that the lost son, the prodigal, came home. And the father loved him and embraced him. He didn't kick him in the behind. He loved him and encouraged him, and it moves us. We read the parable of the Good Samaritan. We studied it a month ago. And when we read that, how can we not be inspired to serve others? How can we not look for ways to reach out to people that Jesus said was our neighbor? When I read the parable of the sower, man, I am reminded I have to have a heart for evangelism. I have to have a heart for people that don't know Jesus. But I've just got to confess, I read the parable of the vineyard workers, and I think it's kind of a ripoff. I think the 12-hour workers got ripped off. I, I, I read that, and I think that's just not fair. It's just not fair. Observation number two. The landowner in this parable is a man of his word. He paid the wages he had promised. One denarius for one day's work. And in Jesus' time, first century world, that was a standard wage for a common job. You would be paid one denarius for one day's work if you were a common laborer. If you were just a common soldier of the day, one denarius for one day's work. And so the landowner here 
is a man of his word. He delivered what he promised. But here's the big observation that I took from this. Defining generosity is really an, a subjective exercise. It's really a subjective exercise. H- how would you define generosity? What do you think? What's generous? I have a crisp $10 bill here, and I'm going to give it to Jim Deffenbaugh. Here you go, buddy. $10 right there. It's all yours. I don't even want it back. Put it in your pocket. Seriously. Not a setup here. Now, here's my question for you. Am I generous? What do you think? Is that a generous thing for me to do, to give Jim $10? What do you think? Some of you might be saying, wow, $10, man, why didn't you pick me? Some of you might be saying, you are a real cheapskate. You only gave him $10? See, if Jim was getting ready to jump in a car and, and, and take a journey to, uh, to, say, Chicago, that $10 would buy him, what, two and a half gallons of gas? He might get to Bloomington normal, maybe, right? That's not very generous. But if Jim was simply wanting to have a cup of coffee, guess what? I just bought 10 days of coffee with McDonald's dollar coffee. And you might say, wow, you're really generous. See, it's hard to define generosity. What may be generous for you may not be generous for me, and vice versa. And as I look at this parable, and I think about what Jesus was trying to communicate, I realize that sometimes, whether I realize it or not, I really connect with the one-hour worker. I'm kind of one in the spirit with the one-hour worker. When I sit back and I think about people like Barb O'Donohue serving in Africa, Jack Swanson serving in Chile, Brian Johnson left a, a great academic gig at Lincoln to go live in the fourth poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, Santiago, Dominican Republic. And I look at all they've had to sacrifice, and I look at last night, they probably didn't get to see the Cubs beat the Cardinals in air conditioning like I did. I mean, did I throw that in there? I'm sorry. That was wrong of me. I'll, I'll repent later. When I think about that, I feel a lot like the one hour worker. Pretty excited about how God has blessed me. Or or I think about people that I met that last week of May in Chicago when I went to Moody Bible Institute for the pastor's conference. I met a guy like a John Feuder, former professor who, who is not a professor anymore, just trying to hang on in the inner city, touch as many lives as he possibly can on a shoestring budget. Or some of the bivocational ministers that I met in Chicago that serve in places like Little Italy or the Roseland neighborhood or Boys Town. And they don't have near what I have. They work much harder than I work. And I feel like the one-hour worker. Or even my friend Kevin Peterson. Friday was Kevin's birthday, believe it or not. And it was my day off. And I went fishing at Little Galley. Caught 12 largemouth in one hour. That is a God thing, let me just tell you. Right now, that is a God thing. But as I was cruising out of there to enjoy my day off, I saw Kevin working like a dog, sweating like crazy on his birthday. I said, what are you doing? He said, serving the Lord serving Jesus. Just happy to be able to serve. I feel like the one-hour worker. But sometimes when I read this parable, and maybe this is the case for you as well, I feel a little bit like the all-day worker, the 12-hour worker. Think of it like this. You've been in the church your entire life. You've served in the really tough ministries, and you've never even been mentioned from the pulpit. You've had to dress up for church, skirts, shirts, ties, whatever may be, even when it's 90 degrees outside. You've sat through how many boring sermons, how many building campaigns, how many committee meetings, 
And here comes this hot shot, brand new Christian, shorts and flip-flops. And they're talking about the joy of the Lord is their strength. And you look at them, and they look a lot happier than you do. They seem more content than you do. And you might just say, that's not fair. You're a little bit like the 12-hour worker. Or, or maybe you reflect back to your youth group days. You were a whirly bird. You were a space cub. You had to go to youth group after youth group after youth group. You never got to see the Bears blow the game in the fourth quarter because your parents made you leave early to get to youth group. And now it's high school, and here comes this kid that's been partying for the first three years, and now he knows Jesus, and everyone's excited about him. And you look at that, and you say, that's just not fair. I'm not being highlighted. No one's talking about me. You're a little bit like the 12-hour worker in the parable. And so I ask you this morning, where are you this morning? Where's your heart this morning? When you read this parable, is it great news? Or when you read this parable, do you find yourself saying, that is not fair? Only you can answer. Well, let's dive in. Modern day lessons, four that I want to leave you with. And the first is this, and it's the most important. The grace of God is just not fair. Be thankful that it's not. The grace of God is not fair. No matter how you slice it, the grace of God is not fair. And be thankful that it's not. Grace, in, in its most basic definition, God's riches at Christ's expense. You, you've seen that before more than likely. God's riches at Christ's expense. And the reality is this, no matter how long you've been in the church, no matter how many sermons you've heard, no matter how many tithes you've given, no matter how much you've been in a ministry, you don't deserve heaven and I don't deserve heaven because we fall miserably short of the mark. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death. But God is awesome. And God provided sinners like you and me a way out of eternal punishment. And that, my friends, is called grace. So understand the grace of God, it's not fair. And praise the Lord that it's not. I was reading this week about the, the Yankee juggernaut in the 50s and the 60s. And they were just a powerhouse team. Won World Series after World Series after World Series. Best team by far. I know some Cardinal people want to be in the argument. Yankees, they were a juggernaut. And they had superstars. Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Bear. The list went on and on and on. And the superstars wanted to be paid. They wanted to make as much money as they possibly could. And most of these guys were just yearly contracts. And at the end of the season, after they won the World Series, they wanted a huge contract, but they were really going to get what the owner decided to give them. And many times these superstars would get their contract for the next year, and they'd be unhappy, and they'd be bitter, and they'd complain. And one time, Yogi Berra, the catcher, Hall of Fame catcher, was walking out of such a negotiation, and someone grabbed him in the media and said, Yogi, 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 tell us about what's happening with your contract. And here's what he said. I'm going to get to play next year for the New York Yankees, and they're going to actually pay me as well. And he turned around and walked away. When's the last time you heard a professional athlete in 2013 with a similar testimony? There's probably some that are out there, but the vast majority are rarely satisfied. Friends, that's grace. We don't deserve God's grace, and God blesses us anyway. Number two, lesson number two, don't get caught up in the game of role reversals. And I'm bad at that, 
And many of us are really bad at that. And here's what I mean by that. God is God and Greg is Greg. God is God and Becky is Becky. God is God and Kevin is Kevin. God is God and Jim is Jim. And too many times we want to be God. Too many times we want to step in with a parable like the parable of the vineyard workers and say, well, that's just not fair. I want to change this around. I want to do something different. And understand God is God and God can do anything he wants to. So deal with it. Book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah was a preacher. Jonah was a prophet. And his assignment was to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the greatest superpower the world had ever seen up to this point in time. And they were a brutal people. They were a vile people. They were a disgusting people. They they were barbarians. And God said to Jonah, go and preach. And Jonah said, I don't think so. And he ran the other way, and then he had this big adventure. You've heard the story. Inside the fish, vomited, sees the light, decides to go to Nineveh, and he preaches. And here's what the sermon was. It was a really complex sermon. Forty days, and the lights are going out. Forty days, and this is all coming to an end. Forty days, and my God is going to act. And then something happened that was unexpected. The people of Nineveh repented. All of the people of Nineveh repented. 120,000 came to know the Lord. It's the greatest revival in the history of God's Word. It's the greatest revival I've ever heard of. It makes a Billy Graham crusade seem like child's play. It was awesome. And Jonah was the preacher. Jonah was the prophet. And guess how he responded? He went and wrote a book and made millions. He developed a best-selling DVD on evangelism. He started uh, as a traveling evangelist, going from town to town to town. No. You know what he did? He got angry, and he pouted, and he became more angry, and he said, God, I want to die. I'm so mad at you for saving those stinking Assyrians. I want to die. And it just reminds me that sometimes it's hard to be grateful when God is good to others and we don't think they deserve it, at least not as much as we do. Lesson number three, accept the fact that throughout your life you're always going to encounter people who claim the name of Jesus and appear to be either more spiritual or less spiritual than you. It's always going to happen. Right now you could make a list probably of ten people that you perceive to be more spiritual than you. And you could probably make a list of 10 people that are less spiritual than you. That's just a fact. Now, two things. Number one, we probably need to stop making lists. We we probably need to stop worrying about who's more spiritual or who's less spiritual and just worry about our relationship with God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. But the second thing is the more you play this game, the more frustrated you will be. If I could implore you this morning, if I could encourage you this morning, don't get caught up in the game of oughts and shoulds. Too many of us play the game of oughts or the game of shoulds. I mean, you should go to church. You should give to the Lord. You should serve with passion. You should pray. You should encourage one another. You should not yell at referees at basketball games. I mean, we could come up with a big list right there of oughts and shoulds. But ultimately, what I want you to get this morning is if I could challenge you to do one thing more than anything else, embrace God's grace. Embrace God's generosity. It's a gift. Grab a hold of it. 
Revel in it. Love it. I found an illustration from the world of uh, academia that I just fell in love with and I want to share with you. It's written by a college student from Hannibal, Missouri by the name of Denise. And I'm going to read her words. She says, in the spring, I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time before my final exam in youth ministry class at Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. And when I got to class, everybody was doing their last minute studying. The teacher came in and said he would review with us before the test. Now, most of his review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing I had never heard of. When questioned about it, he said they were in the book and we were responsible for everything in the book. Don't you love teachers like that? We couldn't argue with that. Finally, it was time to take the test. He passed them out, but he had this instruction. Leave them face down on the desk until everyone has one and I'll tell you to start. When we turned them over, to our astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. And at the bottom of the last page it read, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get an A. You have just experienced grace. And Dr. Tom Hufty then went around the room and asked each student individually, what is your grade? Do you deserve the grade you are receiving? And how much did all your studying for this exam help you achieve your final grade? And then he concluded with these words, some things you learn from lectures, Some things you learn from research, but some things you learn only from experience. You've experienced grace. 100 years from now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, your name will be written down in a book, and you will have had nothing to do with writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. God's grace. Revel in it. It's awesome. And then finally, lesson number four, in conclusion, what I want you to take from here. The parable, as I'm sure you figured out, it's really not about the vineyard workers. It's really about the landowner. And I want to do something I rarely do on Sunday morning. I want to go Greek. I want to tell you about two different Greek words and what Jesus is trying to drive home. And they're both in verse 15. One is agathos, the other is optimalis paneros. And the first, agathos, here in verse 15 is translated generous. But it's only translated generous, uh, of all the times that it's used in the New Testament, only here is it translated generous. Um, Almost every other occurrence, this word in the New Testament is simply translated as good. And it means inherently good. In your outline, write down good. Good in and of itself. Goodness that does not ebb and flow with the circumstances or mood or worthiness of others. Good by nature. Agathos is goodness inherent in the character of its possessor and independent of the actions of others. The owner is Agathos. He's good regardless of whether you earned it or deserved it. And then the second Greek phrase, two words put together here, ophthalmalis paneros, um, Here is translated envious, but what it really means by a true literal translation is the evil eye. What Jesus is really saying here is, are you giving the evil eye? And if I were to translate verse 15, which I I won't do, 
But I think the last part of verse 15, what Jesus is trying to say here is this, dare you give me the evil eye simply because I am good? Dare you give me the evil eye simply because I am good? Let's be honest. Some of us, we are really good at giving the evil eye. My wife can master the evil eye. Sometimes I'll do things or I'll say things and she'll just look at me with that evil eye and I just, I know I'm busted just right there. We're good at giving the evil eye. Dare we give God the Father the evil eye? Dare we say to God the Father, because he's good, because he's a person of grace, that's just not fair. The story is told of a man who died and went to heaven. And St. Peter met him at the pearly gates to examine his qualifications, good news or bad news. And St. Peter, to his amazement, said, we work here on a point system and only those with enough points are able to enter. And the man was surprised. He said, this doesn't jive with my understanding of the faith. This doesn't jive with how you get to heaven. Peter explained, it's simple. We determine how many points you have by the life you've led. We require 100 points to get in. Tell me about your life, and I'll start adding up all the points. And the man thought, he said, well, let's see. I was a faithful member of my church for 47 years. I was a deacon. I was an elder. I taught Sunday school. I even collected the offering. St. Peter thought about it for a moment, and he said, that's one point. At this, the man got really nervous. He started to sweat and just thought, what am I going to do? And he said, well, I was a good husband, and I was a good father, and I gave at church occasionally, and I contributed to charities, and I helped with civic projects. I was in Rotary. I was on different committees. Does that count for anything? And Peter thought about it for a minute and said, yeah, that's one more point. At this, the man's countenance just sank, and he said, I can see the writing on the wall. I'll never make it to heaven. The only way I'll ever get there is by the grace of God. At that, Peter smiled and said, that, my friends, is worth a hundred points. Welcome to heaven. See, the bottom line is this, my friends. God's grace is an incredible gift, really an unfair one. So rejoice and be glad. And don't get caught up in the game. Don't get caught up crying out, that's just not fair. Don't get caught up giving the evil eye. See, in summary, the kingdom of God has a generous owner, deeply good, good to you and 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 to all of you. It's not about you. It's all about him. And he loves to give. And I hope you can see that through the words of this parable. Embrace the grace of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for loving us, and thank you just so much for this incredible gift we call grace. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is invitation time, as it is every Sunday here at our church. And if you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ, to embrace the grace of God, I invite you this morning to come and to give your life to Jesus Christ. And if you're in need of prayer, it's been a tough week for some of us. We've dealt with tragedy. We've dealt with heartbreak. If you're in need of prayer, I'd love to have you come forward and have an opportunity to pray with you this morning. I'm up front. 
Adam Brooker, our youth minister, will be in the back as we stand together and Jim leads us in our song of invitation. To follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go This is my friend Carter Hitchings, and I'm embarrassed to say this. I don't even know what grade you're going in. Fourth. Fourth grade, and Carter went through our baptism class in February, and yesterday at 3 o'clock, this stage was chocked full of family and friends as Carter was baptized. It was a great time. Give him a hand. So, Carter, we did this yesterday, but I want to do it again so the whole church can hear it. I want you to repeat after me that great confession you shared yesterday. I believe. I believe. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. He's my Lord and Savior. He is my Lord and Savior. All God's people said? Amen. 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 Love you, man. God bless you, buddy.